Hello and welcome to the Bliss Tonic Podcast. You are here in the right place. If you want to learn how to use yogic philosophy to embrace and enjoy your time as a human on planet Earth with less judgment and more authenticity. You just get to be who you are. And I am your host, Michelle Anthony, yoga educator and amateur circus performer. Let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the Bliss Tonic Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Anthony, and today I have the most special guest, my dear friend, a movement educator and yoga therapist, Sherry Dostal-Reba. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm really glad that this uh, worked to connect with you. And I was so close to canceling today, just having the craziest emotional week. And I was like, no, you know, I can cancel some things, but not the things that I know are going to nourish me in the long run. And I know that Mm -hmm. I always feel uh, really empowered after connecting with you. So I'm really glad that we decided Mm -hmm. (laughs) to continue this. So uh, (laughs) thank you. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't even remember how we first met, but I know that we've been kind of like professionally connected for a while before we kind of connected more on a personal level. Um, do you remember how we first met? Oh gosh, how we first, first, first met? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I know. We've just kind of been each <laughs> I mean, other's. I know it yeah. was in Eau Claire. Yeah. Um, you know, like location wise, like I live in California now, so I love reconnecting with, you know, the women that were friends of mine in the Midwest and Wisconsin. So I know we have those roots that we share um and I I think my one of my first memories of you was seeing you perform you know doing hooping and fire stuff and um yeah just like that curiosity of like who is that (laughs) and now you have this amazing studio that's growing um and it's so cool to see that that process unfold for you um maybe biking was involved with our first camp encounters as well, like riding around Eau Claire County on bicycles. I feel like that might have been involved. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we have so many different lines of connection. Even my partner, Dan, I feel like you knew him and his kids before and then just seeing you professionally um, in the yoga world before it became a, a yoga scene in Eau Claire. Um, Definitely, Mm -hmm. there was more of a a scattering of of yoga teachers, so I always kind of followed your work. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. do you want to share a little bit about, you know, what you do? Um, I know things are a little bit different as far as what we do nowadays, Mm. Um, but, yeah, just share a little bit about, you know, what you have going on, maybe, you know, what your mission is at this point. Hmm, what my mission is at this point. Uh, I, it's interesting. I've been reflecting a lot on this since 
quarantine, which I imagine, I imagine most people are reflecting on their life at large, you know, with, with being two months into shelter in place. But I feel like my mission is clear and my why is a moving target. Um, so my, my mission, I feel like it has a few different parts to it. Um, one part of my mission is around embodiment. So I teach one-on-one, I teach group classes, workshops, et cetera. Of course, everything has shifted to being online um, or virtual right now. But um, one of the, the threads that I feel passionate about, and it's, it's sort of ironic that I was feeling this um, passion and mission around touch. So I train yoga teachers, um, and there's one particular weekend intensive in the training program here uh, that I offer that's around proprioception, ethics, consent, and hands-on skills or touch skills for yoga teachers. And that has really sort of blossomed, um, at least internally, as a passion over the last couple of years. And I was seeing lots of synchronicities and conversations happening in the, the global uh, yoga community um, in light of different lineages falling, uh, so to speak, um, you know, with breaches of consent or abuse happening. Um, and I feel like consent, ethics, and touch is, is such a polarizing topic. It's such an important topic. And a lot of trainings don't teach touch or consent as explicitly as I would like them to. So long story short, um, training teachers to be more skilled in consent and touch practices, but I think culturally as well, that is needed. You know, right now we're all being told that it's not safe to be together or to touch each other. Um, And that to me is not the new normal. That's not the world that I want to live in. And um, so touch and connection is, one piece of my mission in using, you know, yoga, movement, embodiment, et cetera, as tools and strategies to help us remain connected or even find our way back to each other after this whole pandemic thing shifts <laughs> eventually and it started to shift a little bit. Um, that's one piece. Another piece mission-wise is pelvic health, women's pelvic floor health. Um, there's been such a shortage of attention, consciousness, care, um, accessibility to care within the medical system to, you know, women's intimate health or pelvic floor health support. And the tide has started to shift the last few years with that. Um, but it'll take a while longer before the systemic changes are happening or, or in place. So that women actually all understand that care is necessary and useful and um, that there's great potential for them to, you know, not just to take care of things like incontinence or pelvic pain or, or sexual uh, challenges, but that they deserve it as well. You know, like removing the taboo and the shame around it. Um, and it's been pretty wild to... <laughs> see myself doing my own work in those areas as well, like, you know, stripping back layers and layers of conditioning and, and beliefs around pelvic health or sexuality and uh, really kind of staying the course that, you know, am, am I willing to lead? Yes. 
am I willing to have that as part of my like stake in the sand or on the mountaintop, you know, with pelvic health? And I, I am, I am willing. Um, it's been really interesting to see how the the current cultural understanding around pelvic health and even in the medical system, um, some of what plays out, how frustrating it is for me, someone that, you know, I, I went into birthing my babies feeling informed and educated and ready and capable um, and feeling like I had a voice and that I would, I knew how to discern whether I needed help in terms of pelvic floor specialists or a referral. And I felt like I had a voice. Um, and, and even with all of that wisdom or, you know, embodiment behind me, it still has been incredibly frustrating <laughs> trying to navigate, you know, getting the kind of support that I think all women deserve. So it, it's, um, it's even more important to me now having gone through two uh, deliveries, one cesarean and a VBAC then with my second this last fall. Um, feels even more relevant, even more important to me that, you know, the women that have been told it's common, it's normal, it's part of getting older, it's part of having a baby, like, it's not okay (laughs) for uh, women to just be overlooked or shushed uh, with their concerns. Um, So I hope that my work and my writing around pelvic health and my teaching in that area can help shed light on things um, for women and help them get the kind of care and support and embodiment that they, that's their birthright. Mm, I love that. And I, uh, I am 100% with you on this. You know, it's so deeply rooted that we're told that, you know, all of these aspects of birth that are maybe medical interventions or, you know, anything that can happen, that everything is normal. Um, so normal that we don't even think about it. And this is something, too, I was getting a massage from a new massage therapist who was amazing. Um, and, mm. you know, in the intake form, I didn't put any major surgeries. And then she's, like, massaging. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, sometimes I have my C-section scar or whatever. And she's like, what do you mean? You didn't say you had any major (laughs) surgeries. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. I had a major abdominal surgery, Mm. um, (laughs) a year and a half ago. Um, and it's just like, yeah. And, and, and she's like, well, did you do physical therapy for it? I was like, no. And it's just like such Mm. a, like, they just send you on your way and here's how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. And don't give you any information and that's like a very good representation of the kind of care that we get in regards to well you know our health as women even seeing a doctor for ovarian cysts and she's like yep here's pain pills and a pamphlet um that says Mm. that you're going to be infertile and goodbye (laughs) Mm. so yeah I definitely so so much more we can be doing and and so many more answers and often what we get just from the, the medical community. And, you know, like I'll, I'll offer, I guess, a little a little pop to medicine or, or kudos to medicine that it's there to save our lives. And it is amazing when we need acute care. Um, preventative care, though, is, you know, I, I think a lot of people have already woken up to that. <laughs> that preventative care, lifestyle medicine, um, you know, embodiment, those are, 
practices and strategies that can make a huge difference, but medical doctors are often not trained in any sort of uh, lifestyle coaching or movement, nutrition, et cetera. So it's important that we work together. 100% on that. I'm definitely in the whole pregnancy. I was not happy with my care because it was like, if you don't do this, this bad thing could happen and here's the percentage versus a, a conversation where I can ask questions and actually learn about the root of why things are the way they are and what are, you know, what are the chances and not like looking at it from this fear-based way. However, I'm glad I had that mm. because it saved my baby's life. Like, he Mm -hmm. would not have probably made it if I, you know, wasn't at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you had access to that care because it was necessary. Um, And then, you know, it's also okay for you to share like this kind of disappointment with the way information was presented, that it was presented with kind of a fear or risk management basis and it was more instructive like this is what needs to happen because of these statistics um, versus risk management from a more embodied or empowered way that recognizes a woman's intelligence or sovereignty and being able to understand the risks and statistics but then also make our own decisions and understand how we can potentially reduce that risk you know like how do we restore safety? How do we take care of ourselves the best way possible to make sure that we've done what we can to impact the outcome in a positive way? And sometimes sometimes we can't, you know, like the son was born with cesarean as well after like over 40 hours of labor, um, you know, and I learned a ton from that first experience, um, and there was a lot of grief around that <laughs> as well. Um, but it really propelled me into a huge healing journey to ready myself in a very different way for doing a VBAC at home. And, and that was just as transformative of an experience, um, but it was more of a triumph, more of a reclamation and a remembering of, right, this is, this is what's possible. This is what our bodies are truly capable of doing. Um, you know, and, and when I say body, I guess the way that I work with embodiment is, you know, the body is sort of the, our body is like the vehicle or the way in which we experience life through this physical, tangible form. But embodiment includes, you know, our mind, our beliefs, our spirit, our um, kind of subtle self as well as the physical material self. Um, so yeah, the, the VBAC rocked my world. <laughs> it was such a cool experience uh, and very, very different and such a confirmation of being guided, being held, being supported, being able to ride waves of intensity and, and feel my range and my capacity um, in such a different way than uh, how I went into labor the first time that's beautiful that you had that experience and for anybody who doesn't know what VBAC is can you Mm. explain (laughs) yeah yeah VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean that means that you had a birth experience via surgery and then a 
following pregnancy or delivery um, happen vaginally. So, yeah, and the feedback is. And it mm-hmm. used to be considered normal that if you had a C-section that you would have one again. Is that correct? That it, it used to be the more mm-hmm. medical understanding that it was just safer to have a, a second C-section. Yeah, for for a good several decades, I'm, I'm guessing, and I, I might be wrong on some of the timeline, but um, for quite a few decades or a long while it was understood like you said that a first cesarean would mean future cesareans were safer or healthier or less risk um somewhat recently i believe it was maybe 2017 or 18 or 19 somewhere in there so just very fairly recently ACOG, american college of obstetrics and gynecology um ACOG put out some new guidelines saying that for a lot of women, a lot of the time, VBAC is actually the safer option versus planning on surgery again. Um, and of course, this is very case by case. You know, like I'm, I'm not here to say that VBAC is right for everyone every time. But I would encourage, you know, if there's pregnant mamas listening um, or women wanting to expect or, or have children in the future, just really do your homework, do your research. And check the blind spots. That was an important part of of my journey. And um, yeah, birth can be so black and white, um, like you know politics and a lot of other subjects. It can get really heated really quickly. Um, and I would just encourage everyone to do research, to look at different viewpoints, um, to really look at what you want from a birth experience. Um, and you know, there's plenty of resources out there like indie birth, free birth, etc. Um, to learn about birthing outside of the medical system. Um, for me, I, I considered free birthing, which would be giving birth at home without a healthcare or medical provider present. Uh, I considered that for several months, um, even into probably about the first half of my pregnancy with Magnolia was still on the fence about um, whether having just my husband and I present or having hire hire someone to have them at our home. Um, and it wasn't until about 32 weeks um, that I decided to hire a midwife, a home birth midwife, um, to be there to support me, to have another woman present to witness my experience. Um, I ended up having a doula as well, which was sort of a serendipitous day of. I was in labor. (laughs) Uh, And my friend Linda, who's a doula, um, I was supposed to see her for like a prenatal yoga therapy uh, session that day and my water had broken. Um, So it ended up very seamlessly uh, that she ended up coming over and my labor was so swift and quick. Um, that she was there for birth as well. It happened all in one afternoon. Um, so for me, you know, like I, I sat with the fear and the possibility of, you know, could I live with myself? Am I willing to take on all the responsibility, all the risk of working at home, of doing a VBAC at home, potentially doing that without a, you know, quote unquote provider who knows more than me or, or, knows better 
sometimes we think that they know better. Um, and sometimes they might have insights, you know, some task bursts and things like that um, to help aim us in the right direction. Um, but I really wanted the witnessing that's been part of my journey is relationship, intimacy, uh, vulnerability with other women, other sisters. And I know that you and I have had loads of conversations around that as well. Um, so that was an important piece for me in, in the VBAC was complete trust in myself and my body, that reclamation of like, yep, this baby's coming out of my vagina. We're doing it at home. <laughs> but then at the same time, allowing allowing support, allowing myself to be supported or, or seen uh, through that journey. So that's kind of how I, yeah, came, came to the decision that I did. Um, so, yeah. Wow, it's really intuitive and just, it flowed how it was supposed to. Mm. So can we dive in a little bit to your work with pelvic health? And, you know, I think maybe somebody who doesn't know much about it would just be like, what do you mean pelvic health? Like Kegels? Um, and so can you speak, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like the average person be like, what do you mean? Like Kegels? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah. can you speak a little bit more about that? <laughs> so you're totally correct that most, <laughs> common knowledge is like oh pelvic health I should like squeeze a thousand times a day or oh my doctor <laughs> told me I should do my kegels at every stoplight or when I sit down to pee I can stop this urine stream and that means I know where my kegel muscles are or whatever uh, that's that's pretty like in the kool-aid <laughs> societally speaking uh I often call my work a no kegel zone um so there's a time and place for kegels but there's a lot of research that shows that kegels are not always done properly so unless a woman has had like let's say a pelvic floor physical therapist someone who's doing internal assessment and coaching with you while you're actually kegeling um if, if you haven't had that teaching and coaching of how to do a kegel it might not be um very accurate or effective for you to be doing them um, the other thing is that if you've been doing them and you haven't seen relief or results, quit it <laughs> and reconsider your approach. Um, for for a lot of women, what happens pelvic health-wise, and, and maybe I'll back up, pelvic floor is the muscles inside your body at the base of your pelvis. So the muscles around your urethra, vagina, rectum. Um, and we often think of the pelvic floor as just down there, like sort of a two-dimensional um, surface support. But the reality of the pelvic floor is very um, deep, right? So there's a surface layer um, under the skin and genitals, but there's actually three layers of pelvic floor muscles and connective tissue and membranes. Um, and those three layers provide support all all around or, or throughout those different openings or canals. So they provide support for your pelvic organs. They provide support and stability for your pelvis and your posture. Um, they allow us to move, to squat, to eliminate, to birth babies, to have sex, etc. all of those things. Um, so 
Kegel-wise, um, again, if, if you've done them and not found results, reconsider, find a specialist to help you learn how to do Kegels properly, or just know that there's lots of other ways to improve pelvic health. And potentially for, for many women, myself included, um, if there's a pattern of holding too much tone or tension in the pelvic floor, so if you are a teeth grinder, a breath holder, a butt clencher, <laughs> any of those sort of, you know, static segment patterns of kind of hanging on for dear life or clenching in your physical body, it's likely that your pelvic floor has more resting tone than is necessary. And that can be true even for women that have urinary incontinence, even for women that have like leaks while they cough or sneeze. Um, we often associate that with weakness, like, oh, I'm leaking because I'm not strong enough, so therefore I should go all day long. Uh, but it's very, very likely, and I'm even willing to say perhaps more likely, um, that women are having too much tone or tension in their pelvic floor and need to learn how to breathe, how to relax, how to mobilize those muscles so that they can actually do their jobs better. It'd be like, if you're at the gym trying to strengthen your arms or tone your biceps and you just hold the weight at 90 degrees elbow flexion for the next, you know, five minutes or something without any movement, or if you're just doing that all day long, that muscle's going to get tired. It's going to be less able to do its work for you to lift and bend and carry things and set them down and move about your day functionally. And the pelvic floor muscles are similar that they need full range, they need circulation, breath, movement, um, and relaxation or down training in someone's nervous system. Uh, so relaxation response is usually the first place that I start with people um, to, to help them get that baseline tone restored for movement, breath, etc. Um, and then strengthening comes later if it's appropriate. Um, but yeah, no Kegel zone for, for my approach. <laughs> so. Cool. I love that. And I have never heard that analogy of like holding your arm at the one angle versus mobility. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Glad that was useful. Yeah. So what is like, so you start with the, you know, relaxation techniques in order to and probably diaphragmatic breaths to help relax Mm -hmm. the muscles and especially you know we're talking mostly women here is the um hyper the hyper I don't know if hypertension has a whole different meaning in medical terms but how basically we're taught as women to essentially suck the stomach in and stay small and kind of in this in this kind of way of way we present ourselves to to stay thin we suck everything in do you think that's like a, a big piece of this um, tension that we're seeing or hypertonicity mm, definitely part of the puzzle yeah yeah because the the core cylinder right we're talking pelvic floor but that's like the the base of the cylinder so we have our whole abdominal wall 360 all the way around us we have our thoracic diaphragm on top and the pelvic floor underneath and that whole foundational core system needs movement or oscillation 
to be functional. It can't be held all the time. It can't be flaccid or relaxed all the time. It has to move through activation and relaxation back and forth with every breath. Um, so yeah, diaphragmatic breathing, restorative yoga, mobility for the hips and pelvic floor. That's often the first step. Um, when I'm working with like a private client or in my online program. And then everybody needs strength or fitness, right? We, we need to condition our whole body to be able to do life and have a good time and go on adventures and, and feel capable and have longevity. So we need strength throughout our whole body. But for a lot of women doing Kegels, that isolated voluntary contraction of squeezing your pelvic floor for a lot of women, that's not actually what they need. They might need strength through the rest of their body, a more global approach, but their pelvic floor itself might actually need to learn to relax, to give, and to receive the breath, the breath movement. That's the beauty, I think, of working one-on-one with clients is truly, you know, as a yoga teacher, we oftentimes are teaching full classes and it is challenging to speak to everyone. And truthfully, you, I mean, can you speak to everybody in a class when two people side by side need the exact opposite? Mm, Right. Yeah. So for group classes, you know, for yoga teachers listening that are teaching to groups, um, I would gently challenge you on any sort of absolute cues. So absolute cues are instructions that ask people to engage or lift or pull up or tuck their tail or any, anything that becomes sort of a black and white. I'm telling everyone in the room to do this, especially mm. if it's a cue or instruction that is asking people to activate even more. Um, I would I would ask you to kind of unravel that a little bit and see if you can cue with more some people call it trauma-informed language. We could just call it invitational language. So inviting people's awareness to pay attention to their pelvis or pelvic floor or hip muscles, as well as their jaw and other parts of their body, right? And rather than telling them what to do with that part of their body, it's often safer, more accessible um, for a broader audience of students if we're asking them to inquire, we're inviting them to build awareness, the capacity to feel from more growth sensation to more subtle sensation, um, that kind of interoceptive skill that we invite students into, that's going to be, um, you know, more relevant for more students more of the time um, versus doing these activation or kind of like the bondas, for example. Um, some people can work with that safely and be totally fine. Other yogis that were taught, oh, when I stand in mountain pose, I do all of this checklist of things, like spread my toes and press down and stand tall and pull in and suck in and draw up or whatever. We're so (laughs) mentally bombarded by those cues that it's creating over-recruitment through our entire body, and that will prevent breathing. It will prevent healthy joint movement and and movement function. like mountain pose, I often call it stand like a human. <laughs> like I don't ask people to turn their palms or tuck in or pull up or whatever. I say, okay, we're going to stand up now. Find mountain pose. Stand like a human. 
notice what you feel as you stand up in your body. And that way people start to register where their tension patterns are or what their habitual ways of moving are. And once we're aware of them, then we can start to shift them or change them and become more functional. Um, so it, it takes that sort of subtle inquiry or, or invitation um, to actually improve movement function versus just telling people all the things that they should be doing. <laughs> so it's like a different teaching model altogether. It's a different paradigm to teach and to in that way. Um, and it, it's helpful for pelvic health, but also just broad, you know, general health and movement health as well. Uh, 100%. And that's something, uh, you know, you called it you know, just trauma informed, uh, you know, awareness when cueing. And I like to think about it as experiential alignment cues instead of, you know, knee over ankle. Um, but mm-hmm. how we're engaging and why we're engaging and, you know, encouraging people to go into, you know, what they feel is such a beautiful gift um, versus doing what they're told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want students to build skills where, you know, potentially I work myself out of a job, <laughs> you know, like because people are becoming more and more capable of guiding themselves. Um, I think that's ultimately the, the goal of our work as teachers is to create independence or, you know, through giving people those skills, then there's this beautiful interdependence, not codependency, where they have to come to us for, for us to tell them what they should be doing. That's not what I believe as a teacher um, is useful, but, but there can be this beautiful back and forth or interdependence, right? They learn skills and agency and, and more and more subtle awareness and strategies that are relevant for them personally and they can guide their own practice with more and more um, skill and wisdom. And yet our teacher-student relationship is growing and flourishing uh, because we're both committed to the process. We're, we're committed as teachers to learning and not knowing, right? Like I'm committed to learning all I can from research and embodiment and physiology and anatomy and all, all of what's out there. Um, science-wise and yogic text-wise, etc. I want to keep learning, but I will never be able to feel what the student is feeling. Mm-hmm. That student has to learn how to feel what's going on in their own system, in their own embodiment, and then that gives them clues about the choices they can make or modifications that might be necessary on any given day, um, and, and they're learning uh, that internal Atman, you know, their their own inner teacher is coming alive from the teacher-student relationship versus it creating a codependency. Mm, yes, and this is such a beautiful segue, you know, as we spoke about in the beginning about almost this fall of guru culture um, within yogic <clears throat> traditions is there, you know, the the atmosphere that's created in, you know, maybe those places where abuse has taken is the opposite of what we're talking about here is that dependence. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of want to segue into, you know, 
touch and how, um, you know, how we approach this. Um, and I, I think, you know, like you said, it's something that, that gets almost like throw, thrown out um, because, you know, there's a lot right now that has been exposed in regards to abuse, you know, specifically around inappropriate touch within the yoga community. Um, even not even inappropriate, you know, in more than one way, you know, injury or sexual abuse, there's a, such a, a broad range of trauma that can be, that can happen. Um, but, you know, there's, it's almost like it when it teaches, like, oh, if you know this pose, do it. Um, instead of teaching a, a pose, we kind of throw out the teaching of it because it, it's maybe a more uh, intricate or tricky subject um, and it's more individual. And so I would I, I, I know personally your your viewpoints on touch and I would just love you to to go deeper into that and share that with with this community. Mm. There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> there's a lot there. I almost want to back up and talk consent a tiny bit. Can we do that? 100%. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's, you know, there, like you said, a lot of um, the response, the knee-jerk response has been, well, if touch has created environments of abuse or um, boundary violation or injury for students, let's just not touch altogether. And I, I'm very adamantly opposed to this black and white sort of uh, swing of the pendulum to the opposite extreme. Like, let's just not touch ever because touch is needed. You know, biologically, socially, emotionally, we need touch and connection, human connection. Um, the consent process, though, I, I think for yoga teachers, and, and I will try to keep it brief instead of the whole, you know, two-day workshop that I normally teach on this, um, the consent process is, is part of the touch exchange, always, always, always. Even if we have a flip chip or a card at the front of someone's mat, even if we've asked the group at the beginning of a class, and of course this is a little different since we're all teaching online these days, but I am holding the vision that we will teach in person again in the future. Um, so even if we have some of those other policies in place, like the consent cards, or we ask every student when they come in the room, or it's in the waiver that they sign for the studio, or we ask in child pose, you know, like if you don't want to be touched, raise a hand, which by the way, if you do that, like you might forget 20 minutes later <laughs> when you have a big proof, you know, and, and you have to be able, able to track that effectively if that's your strategy or policy. Um, what I think is more effective for consent is knowing that it's an ongoing part of the exchange. And if I'm teaching a group or a, even a private lesson, I ask every time. And in the asking, I'm not just looking for a yes or no verbally. I'm also tracking nonverbal communication, like what are their eyes telling me, what's their breathing and, and facial expressions and, and body language telling me about whether they're fully feeling the, the yes or the no, because sometimes we get a verbal yes, but there's something else off that's not saying yes, go ahead and touch me. Um, the other part of consent is what am I consenting to? 
asking the question at the beginning of a class, are you open to hands-on adjustments? That is so wide open and it doesn't really give students the informed consent to know what they're agreeing to or not agreeing to. Um, so I think it's more streamlined, more effective to ask the individual in the moment before having an interaction with them. And then you're tracking that consent throughout whatever, you know, teaching or intervention that you're working on together. So at any point, the student could say, I'm good, that's all. You can take your hands off me now. Or actually something funny is coming up. Or actually I'm feeling really emotional. Let's pause, right? So there, there needs to be a fluidity and an ongoing tracking of consent. And even just that process of negotiating consent together can be so reparative, so healing for people that have struggled with boundaries or, or consent in the past or have had their consent violated in the past for them to be able to learn how to say yes or no, more pressure or less pressure, move your hands up, please. I'm done, take your hands off me, please. Right, those are, those are all difficult things for um, you know victims or survivors. It can be really difficult for them to be able to voice that. I think as teachers, so I, we can be a part of that repair process if we learn these nuances of tracking consent um, and knowing that touch is not me doing something to someone. Uh, it's a transmission. It's an exchange together and inviting in, again, that inquiry or that curiosity of, hey, I'm noticing such and such in your posture. Would you be open to me having my hands on your shoulder blades for the next few moments? Right. So there's information about where I'm going to touch, um, why I'm going to touch. There's a clear intent before I ever walk over to someone's mat. I know why I'm curious to work with them. And then it's this dance back and forth where they're still the expert on their body. They can register what they're feeling. Um, and I'm in dialogue with them about how the touch is serving or not serving them. I have to be open to getting it wrong or not knowing exactly what they might need and changing course throughout the exchange. Mm, I love that so much. And I think it is mm -hmm. such a powerful tool. Um, and like you said, to just repair our connection to consent. And it's something that, you know, is more openly talked about in in regards to sexual consent. Um, there's a lot of conversation going around around, you know, being able to rescind consent and, you know, asking each time. And this is such a beautiful way to bring that narrative into this healing and uh, therapeutic context. Mm. That we're actually mm. providing a service of teaching people, you know, like it's, you know, the creating the space for people to explore consent without it being, um, you know, misinterpreted, you know, when we set a boundary with somebody, you know, that maybe the space for that boundary wasn't created in such an open way. We have a lot more fear around, um, addressing that boundary, 
um, you know, of how that person is going to react and, and whatnot. And so just really holding this really sacred space for consent to be practiced um, and boundaries to be placed in, in a really, um, yeah, informed and, and beautiful way. I love everything that you just shared, and I really mm-hmm. appreciate that so much. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I feel a bit compelled <laughs> to share that consent is not only important for the student, but also for the teacher. So with the threat of embodiment or being able to accurately perceive what is my own embodiment telling me right now, like what state am I in? Um, you know, there are times where I take touch off the table for group classes because of what I'm registering in my own nervous system or my own narrative or whatever it might be. Um, so consent is a process for teachers as well as the recipient, the student. Last but not least, I feel compelled to say that this kind of exchange is, I feel more relevant and can be held with that that sacred perspective and, and safe space more relevantly or more um, easily in, say, a workshop environment or definitely in a one-on-one environment. Um, what I call drive-by adjustments, like when I've had group classes and someone comes over and touches me and then they're poof, they're gone. <laughs> Before I've even registered, like, what happened or, you know, there was no dialogue, there was no verbal consent, there was no, I'm going to put my hands here before they touch me. So those kind of drive-by adjustments where, you know, I think people that teach are well-intentioned, right? We want to connect with our students and offer that touch as much as possible if that's part of our paradigm or or our worldview or or teaching methods. But... I think the time that it requires to really negotiate consent, to really let the touch land with consciousness for the student and, and create some kind of imprint or change, it just takes time. And I don't think that it's very um, useful or effective in large group classes where you're trying to serve 10 or 15 or 30 people for a flow class, for example. I think that this process is very important, very reparative, incredibly healing, but we have to look at the context as well, like what's our intent behind why we want to touch, and is the context or environment actually going to allow us to follow that thread start to finish? Um, because once we touch, then you know that opens up this, this whole kind of can of worms where we want to make sure that the, the exchange feels complete. And it, it felt effective and useful, and we can process afterwards if anything has come up. Yes, all of those things. I really appreciate you saying both of those additions. And, you know, I think too, even just the mental state of a student, you know, awaiting their drive by adjustment maybe isn't one that is cultivating this intention behind our yoga practice of moving inward and maybe more so focusing on you know, where's the teacher, when are they coming by, and kind of those kinds Mm. of thoughts being cultivated is something that I've noticed personally attending a class Mm -hmm. as somebody who loves touch, and I'm just like, the whole class, like, all right, all right, how long are they taking on this person? All right, I'm ready to be touched, I'm ready to be loved, and like you said, it kind of leaves (laughs) me wanting that more more of that, Um, 
And mm. yeah. Um, and I really love mm. your saying about teachers. Um, and it's definitely something that, you know, I used to do a lot more in my group classes and not a lot, just, you know, some things here and there. And at a certain point, it felt like this is a lot of energy for me. And, you know, I, it's not necessarily about the, how much I'm making for that class. But when I consider how much energy I spend versus, you know, being paid for a drop-in class versus how, how good it feels to give loving touch in a one-on-one session and the energy exchange mm-hmm. in that, it, I, I stopped doing touch in, in most, you know, mm-hmm. uh, more the uh, therapeutic or like loving touch um, in my drop-in classes and especially ones when I, when I, you know, go on and hit everybody, maybe in a Shavasana um, with that drive-by, um, <laughs> which I love that term. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it just felt at a certain point and, you know, I did get people who are like, oh, I missed that. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and I totally get that. But yeah, it, it just felt like, you know, it being drained a little bit and not that right. touching people is draining, right. but trying to, you know, connect with everybody and that kind of stuff, it felt like not an even exchange. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I, I really and if appreciate there's that. even a hint of that depletion or resentment, then that, that creates such a different um, place for us as teachers to be coming from, you know, like even when, before we walk into the room, if we're feeling that kind of residue, from our last class where we felt a little depleted that quite likely will come with us into the next class unless we're conscious of it and make some choices like you said you did you know you made some choices about context and what felt more sustainable for you Mm -hmm. yes and you know everybody has their what they feel most comfortable with and just for me that felt like okay I'm not going to do this anymore um in a in a yeah and and it's it's something I really love doing but in a one-on-one context that that feels really good as a practitioner um and to get that you know like you said that like feedback and having more of a conversation there's just more space for it a a conversation to be had in a one-on-one context versus you know holding space for a conversation in a class of even as small as 10 people eight people having a conversation Mm -hmm. around consent and touch and and whatnot in front of others can can be another um you know, place of discomfort for us. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the, the group context or kind of peer dynamics, uh, as well as the power dynamics, teacher to student, we have to consider all of that if we're in the role of a teacher um, to make sure that we're conscious about how we bring up certain topics and, and what's going to serve the student in being able to have their voice heard. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, feeling comfortable to actually speak up. So I, I am dying to know, (laughs) I'm I'm just like, (laughs) about how you're feeling right now, you know, with our current climate Mm. in regards to touch and how you're navigating that. Um, And yes, can you speak a little bit more about what you're going through (laughs) and processing and sharing and personal practices, that kind of stuff? Oh, goodness. Um, the first thing that came to mind, which is why I chuckled, is just the fact that I have two small children. <laughs> and so I have so much touch all day long, 
where, you know, I have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old and I'm breastfeeding uh, the the seven-month-old. So in theory, I have lots of contact, lots of touch, uh, lots of social engagement. Um, And at the same time, uh, other ways of connecting or engaging, like say in my marriage or with colleagues or with students, face-to-face, you know, those those have all changed or shifted um, with this whole quarantine pandemic business. Um, so, yeah, my, my passion for touch was sort of blooming, wildly blooming for, you know, a month or six weeks before quarantine, and then everything got shut down, and I was like, yeah, now what do I do? Because I, I was on the verge, actually, of, like, writing up um, new workshop outlines to offer all around the U.S. because I'm so passionate about this and maybe even a book proposal around touch and consent. And then I was like, oh, now the world is very different. At least temporarily, it's very different. Um, so I've, I've put all of that on pause for now because I have a different writing project that I'm focused on. Um, so in terms of how I'm feeling now, I... I've chosen to at least try, it's difficult as any mother of small children in quarantine can tell you, uh, it's, it's difficult, but I've at least chosen to try to really soak up the oxytocin of my small children interactions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I'm breastfeeding or when Magnolia is crawling all over me and her little toes are jabbing into my pubic bone and my belly because she just is like such a go-getter. She's moving so much right now. Um, I'm trying to watch my agitation <laughs> and instead of letting the agitation grow or frustration grow, um, really shift back into, okay, wait a second, nervous system, hormones, this could be an opportunity for me to get an oxytocin hit and feel good and feel connected and feel loved and loving. Um, and so it, it has taken that, that conscious shift of my attention and intention to stay present for them for longer periods of time, which, you know, it's nothing but present because, you know, we don't have school and childcare and outside help um, right now the way that we would without this pandemic. Um, and I, there was this moment um, with Jason, my husband, um, it was probably about a month into this circumstance. Um, and he started working from home at Sort of the beginning, like March 17, and we're now into like whatever it is, May 21 or something. Um, so it's over two months that he's been working from home full time, and then I'm also trying to write and work and see clients um, from home. And meanwhile, we have these two monkeys running around. So it was maybe three or four weeks in where he looked up from his laptop and we met eyes, and it we hadn't looked at each other in so many days or weeks. (laughs) And I know that that's not actually true, right? Like we, we have conversations each day. We look at each other multiple times a day, but there was something about that moment that felt um, far more intimate or present um, in meeting each other's eyes. And, and I think that there's just an interesting mix right now of overwhelm and underwhelm. (laughs) 
Like there's the overwhelm of unknown and the uncertainty. If we've lost loved ones, if we've lost work, um, we don't know what the future looks like or how long we're going to be in this whole quarantine thing. So there's, there's overwhelm from the news and the circumstances. And a lot of us, myself included, are feeling levels of anxiety or stress or agitation that, that are very much not thankfully part of my norm before this. Um, but then also this weird underwhelm of like feeling bored or understimulated or just like ready to take this pent up energy and like blow the doors off this house and get outside and like just rebel <laughs> and go out and do all the things that we normally do. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, it's a really weird time that we're in. I don't think that this shelter in place is normal or long-term healthy for us as humans. We're animals. We need connection. We need social engagement. Um, and so I've been exploring with different ways to get my needs met personally, um, as well as, you know, my clients and students that are, are sharing some of this same dysregulation of overwhelm, underwhelm, kind of swinging back and forth and like, how do we land ourselves back in presence again or um, a quote-unquote regulated or, or more resilient state physiologically? Um, and I, that way of not just registering consciously, you know, where we are or how we are in terms of embodiment, but then also knowing strategies and skills to be able to state change, right? So we can be completely unconscious of what's registering in our bodies and just be kind of status quo or dissociated or like binging on social media or whatever and and not have on our radar what our body's telling us the unconscious i think the next step which hopefully this is awakening people to is more consciousness and more ownership of their embodied state like we're we're seeing quote-unquote symptoms or suffering people that had, you know, there's even articles about people that have dealt with mental health concerns or anxiety and depression before quarantine that for some of those people, it's actually allowed their symptoms to improve because they no longer have sort of the social stressors um, that may have been triggering for them before. Life is simplified for us because we're, we've been told to stay home and a lot of things are canceled. Um, so some of us might be feeling better in this um, circumstance, and I want to leave room for that. Others of us are feeling challenged from the changing circumstances and the uncertainty that we feel. And ideally, I, I would like to see this be an opportunity for people to wake up to their embodiment and to be able to take ownership of not only recognizing their state and moving from unconscious to conscious, right? Being able to actually pay attention, feel what we feel, know what we feel, um, observing ourselves, but then shifting from pure consciousness. I'm just watching, witnessing, observing what I feel, then into action, awareness into action, and being able to understand how we can state change. So if we are experiencing suffering, what do we do about that? How do we reduce our suffering or restore connection? Um, so I've been playing a lot with mudra, 
been playing a lot with self-touch and self-massage. Um, I've been noticing eye contact, like I mentioned, and even when I'm on a video call with a student of mine, um, some of these skills, it takes a little more awareness or like oomph to maintain it because it's an artificial environment, right? It's not the same as sitting across a, a coffee table from someone. Um, but being able to really see someone's eyes and to see them kind of from our whole body versus our eyes getting narrower or kind of a more piercing direct focus of staring at the screen, being able to shift um, what I do is shift from that outward attention out there on the screen and looking at someone, being able to shift back into my body, which sometimes even means that my posture leans back a little bit more. And I feel the back of my body, the whole surface of my skin, and I let my eyes relax. So taking a more kind of open or diffuse focus and with that eye contact, kind of really registering presence. Um, even though it is artificial and it's through a screen, how can we at least try to still tap into some of the nourishment of being together? Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that for many people, this could be a, a great time of reflection and um, increased embodiment or increased skill in these areas. Uh, I think culturally, though, to come out of quarantine and shelter in place, I, I feel somewhat convinced that for many people, it will be hard to register safety again. Like, can I hug someone? Can I be in the same room as someone? Can I breathe deeply in the grocery store again instead of like I found that I was holding my breath almost constantly um, when I went shopping last month and actually Jason's shopped once a week since then and I haven't even tried that experiment again. I'm gearing I'm up to go again um, in the next week or two to take that on and wear my mask and practice these embodiment, embodiment skills um, even in the changing context of, you know, mask wearing and social distancing or physical distancing. So, so yeah, there's a lot there. Um, but I think it's, I think it's imperative that we remember that touch is normal and needed and connection is normal and needed and it is safe for us to be together. It looks a little different right now. Um, and hopefully we can, you know, find our way back together. Yay. All of that. Um, so this is really, really beautiful. And the eye contact thing, I haven't even thought of doing that on Zoom. But I, I recently went to a women's circle that was, you know, physical, distanced, and outdoors, and you know, it was actually a, a womb dance circle, and we were just out mm. by the river, and we went in front of everybody and closed our eyes and let our womb dance through us, and um, then made eye contact with everybody um, one by one, mm. and I was just like, oh my god, it's been so long, like, that was, like, such a beautiful, deeper connection 
than I've had in, you know, months, truly, especially when, you know, in this element of sisterhood and that connection of of just feeling seen by another woman. So I hadn't even Mm -hmm. thought about doing that via Zoom, but that is a really beautiful thing to highlight. It's possible. This looks different. I want a womb dance with you. I, <laughs> I miss hosting women's circles in person. Yeah, I I will host them on Zoom at some point, um, somewhat soon. I feel that that desire coming coming through. Um, so yeah, this physical distancing in person by the river and being able to still connect um, with our eyes and movement—that's so beautiful. Mm. I yeah. need a river boom dance yes. <laughs> in my life right now. Yes. <laughs> yes, even solo. But yeah, something about feeling seen and everybody's dance looked so different based on, you know, their energies and, and what they were processing at the time. And yeah, it was, it was a really beautiful thing to, to have space with, mm. with others. So um, what do you have that people could get involved with? Do you have any offerings? Obviously, right now online, and I know a lot of my listeners mm-hmm. are in Wisconsin. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, do you have anything that uh, people could connect with you through? Mm. So, I do. Um, the best way to be in touch with me right now is probably to join my email newsletter. Um, so I can get you a link to give out in the show notes for that, um, for people that want to stay in touch with me. Um, I am in what I think is being called isolation innovation. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm overhauling some things in my business right now and shifting platforms for my online programs. So I do have an online program for pelvic floor health for women. It's a foundational program. I have had a lot of yoga teachers and even yoga therapists take the program as well, but it's meant for um, a student or experiential program versus like a training or or professional program. Um, So that is going to be opening in the future. Um, And if you're on my email list, you'll get announcements about that or um, you can even just message or email me directly and say, hey, put me on the wait list. So the Public Four program will be happening. Um, I am seeing one-on-one clients, but I'm booked pretty well through June already um, because I've just got a small, smallish capacity with mothering and writing a book. So um, that's the other, the other piece that I'm focused on right now. I have a book contract with Singing Dragon, and um, it's a women's pelvic yoga therapy book for yoga teachers and yoga therapists. So I'm deep in the writing process right now. It'll come out actually slated for June of 22. (laughs) So it feels like light years away right now. Um, But in the meantime, I'm seeing clients one-on-one. The online group program will be reopening in the future and you can get on the wait list for that. Um, And most of my social media time is on Instagram. So you can find me at Sherry Dostal on Instagram um, or join my email list. 
And I can attest that your newsletter and your following you on Instagram is always very inspiring. So I definitely recommend that everybody signs up for your newsletter and follows you on Instagram. I always love gleaming um, insight and, you know, just taking in your vulnerability. So I appreciate all that you put out into the world. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. It's it's an interesting dance to be. yeah, be visible while breastfeeding and mothering and writing and on quarantine. And like, it's like no one sees you, right? Like you're in your house all day, every day. But yet we can still be connecting and visible and vulnerable with each other. Um, so I appreciate that you uh, enjoy the newsletters and, and what I'm sharing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just going to put this out there for everybody listening that, you know, for anybody who's putting out any content that you enjoy to go over and send them some love and let them know that you appreciate it. I think it's something and a way that we can connect in, in you know, in deeper and, and new levels is to not just be a, um, you know, passive consumer of this information, but to I challenge you to go uh, spread the love for mm-hmm. anybody that, that you love their content content because it's definitely something that you know we don't always get feedback on and it is just a really a really lovely gift to know that Mm -hmm. um you know we're heard and seen as well so thank you for sharing that yeah well thank you so much for um, being a guest on this episode sharing your wisdom and just about your life and everything that you know you've been cultivating and studying and embodying over the past years. And I just, I, I'm really grateful that I got to spend this time with you today. So thank you. Mm, thank you for hosting Michelle. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. See you later. Bye.